All right, welcome back, everybody, to episode eight of the third season of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Renneke. Thanks so much for stopping by. I really appreciate it. Today, we're talking all about platelet-rich plasma, or PRP. We're going to talk about the definitions, the mechanism, how we think it works, when we use it, all that fun stuff. So let's dive right in. All right, so let's get started with the definition, right? So the definition is, formally, it's an autologous blood product acquired from part of the plasma fraction created by centrifugation of the whole blood. Holy cow, what does that mean? Let's break it down. Well, autologous meaning coming from the same patient, right? It's not coming from someone else. This is coming from your own blood. Not, an autologous blood product means you are getting that blood taken out from you, and then we spin it down in a centrifuge, and we get these different components which we'll talk about there. But essentially, that is the definition. It is something that's coming from you. We spin down your blood to get concentrated platelets. That's the long story short of it. Like I said, there's that fancy term that we just talked about the definition, but long story short, taking out your blood, spinning around a centrifuge, getting concentrated platelets, and then injecting that back in you. So, but let's just step back a little bit first, kind of talk about some more basic physiology and kind of walk through the blood layers and what what's inside of blood, right? So we talk about all that fun stuff. So first of all, blood is made up of bunch of different things. First of all is plasma. Plasma is about 55% of your blood volume and plasma is mostly water with some proteins and some electrolytes there, but plasma is kind of like the fluid, um, the majority of the fluid you have there. And then on top of that, we also have, you know, we have plasma and then we also have like specific cells where we have something called like a buffy coat inside the buffy coat we typically have white blood cells that are known for you know fight off infection and then platelets which are responsible for clotting inflammatory response all that stuff and then outside of the buffy coat the last layer we have is red blood cells and the job for those is to carry oxygen throughout the body so if we think about it we kind of break it down into plasma and then this buffy coat with the white blood cells and platelets and then red blood cells those are like the main components of the blood that we have so that being said, we're understanding, hey, where are we getting these platelet-rich plasma from? So we talk about platelet-rich plasma. Plasma is like we talked about mostly the water, kind of the fluid portion of that. And then platelets, we are concentrating those down. Those are coming from our buffy coat, kind of that in between that has the white blood cells and the platelets. So we are taking that, spinning it down, concentrating those platelets, mixing it with a little bit of plasma and doing it in. So like I said, by definition though, like I said, the whole thing with PRP, we have to have a higher concentration of platelets than normal physiologic levels. That's why it's platelet-rich plasma. It's not just normal platelet plasma, you know, it's platelet rich. So we are spinning down and getting more higher concentration than we normally would and injecting that. So that's kind of what gets it going. That's kind of how we define it. So let's move on to preparations. The biggest caveat I'm going to talk about here, like if you take one thing away from here, it's that there's no standardized protocol for anything about PRP. You know, it's the general idea is, you know, what we call differential centrifugation, right? So centrifugation is a machine that spins around super, super fast and makes various components of the blood settle at different depths based on their specific gravity or basically their weight. So like I said, we take out that blood, draw it back, and then we put it in this machine that just goes around super, super fast. Like it's super, super fast. You wouldn't, you can't even see it. Um, but that with that process, with this, the gravity there kind of working when we're spinning, it brings things down based off of their specific gravity or size. And so we get these different components. So when you pull it out, you'll see distinct layers in like the test tube that you put in with. And so when we are preparing things, there's two main methods. There's one that's called the PRP method and the other one's called the Buffy coat method. We'll kind of talk about each here. The PRP method is probably a little more common. What happens is blood is taken and then put in that centrifuge and then you kind of have a soft spin to separate off the red blood cells. We found that red blood cells tend to not do fantastically. You know, we don't tend to have a lot of great outcomes that we've seen. They're not that studied, but they tend to be irritating to wherever we inject them into. So we don't typically use that. And then, so we do a kind of that first soft spin to get off the red blood cells. And then what's left is called the supernatant. That's the flu that remains on top. And then that is then spun down again at a more vigorous pace to get the concentrated platelets. So once again, this whole PRP method, what's happening is we are spinning it down once, getting the red blood cells off. We don't want that. And then we have the supernatant left, and then we spin that again to get that concentrated platelets. So that's what's typically happening. And the other method is called the Buffy coat method, where we have whole blood is stored at room 
temp and then undergoes a hard spin that separates into three layers which are the red blood cells platelets and wet blood cells together aka the buffy coat and then platelet pore plasma and so like i said that on top of that you know we do have the spins that kind of matter so we have in there we have three different categories right we're gonna get rid of, gonna get rid of the red blood cells some people say oh do we keep the ppp the platelet pore plasma or do you use the platelet rich path it's like it's kind of here or there but like i said those are the two main ideas meaning we can have those layers in different settings like i said for the long story short prp method spin down get rid of rub, get rid of red blood cells have what's left spin that down get the platelets the buffy coat method we're essentially spinning it down and then having those three levels getting rid of the red blood cells and you can decide if you want to use the platelet pore plasma or the platelet rich plasma so like i said that being said the spin is really important it kind of provides various platelet yields so the spin is going to dictate a lot of things usually you'll have two spins but what how many revolutions per minute you have will determine the concentration so there's various protocols on what they're doing but usually they're anywhere from a thousand to 3600 rpm now, I think anywhere from like four to 15, 20 minutes, depending on what you're spinning. And like I said, lots of variability with all the different literature out there. And typically slower spin rates will yield higher platelet counts. Theorizing, the theory is that if you spin too fast, it might cause clumping or disintegration. So that's kind of why we're not having way, way, way high RPM, but kind of keeping a little lower around that, like I said, 1,000 and 3,600. So that being said, what also affects the yield is patient factors, right? can be if someone's fasting or not. So fasting patients in studies they looked at had fewer platelets than those who had had a high fat meal. Something to consider there is that standard protocol. We're saying, Hey, don't eat before that or have a big fatty meal before. No, not necessarily, but just something to consider. And on top of that, we also have to have anticoagulants ready when we're preparing this. I'm not saying you have to be on anticoagulants or taking, you know, a medication like that, but it's important to have an anticoagulant in the preparation so that it prevents clotting, right? So we're trying to prevent clotting of those platelets. That could be bad. There's a common anticoagulant called EDTA that is super common and actually may cause platelet degranulation. So we recommend not using that one. Heparin, also another common one used with blood draws, may cause spontaneous aggregation of platelets, also not recommended. The big one that's used predominantly is called anticoagulant citrate dextrose A or ACDA, most common one used. It maintains an optimal pH around 7.2 and the citrate binds calcium, which inhibits the clotting cascade. And so, like I said, we're trying to keep prevent things from clotting so if they're clotting up they're not going to be as active and that's that's what we're going for and so at the end of the day is there a best protocol for preparation uh, you know one study recommended a potential thing but like there's no uniform recommendations you know so they'll say the one that was recommended may saying like hey they kind of did the review of some, some review of them and say hey, is there a best one they say you know incubated at four degrees celsius or 39 you know fahrenheit and then the we have such supplement with cryoprecipitate which is another component of blood and it kind of got fancy long story short that has not caught on in any degree and nobody's doing one standardized protocol we have lots and lots of different things that like i said the reason they suggest that is like oh maybe we have increased angiogenesis or you know our blood vessel creation increasing vegf other growth factors fibroblast growth factors all these things but like i said it's definitely not there and so the problem with this is there's so much heterogeneity you'll hear me say this over and over again heterogeneity meaning we have so many different models different you know systems of prp the way they spin do they spin or they're not spin how many times do you spin do you take off the buffy coat do you take off the platelet board plot so many different options that we can do that it's just not unified and so some people have tried to come up with classification systems and i'd say there's been t multiple of them but the most recent one called marspill essentially it's a acronym for method activation red blood cells spin platelet concentration is it image guided and then leukocyte concentration or light activation so 
And that's a whole lot there. But I said, those are kind of the main things we've learned, you know, method meaning how did we collect it? Is it, you know, the PRP method is the Buffy code activation. Are you quote unquote activating them? Do you, what do you do with the RBCs? How fast do you spin it? What's the platelet concentration? Are you gonna use an image guide injection? What's the leukocyte concentration? Cause there's always gonna be some white blood cells. Some people say they want leukocyte rich or leukocyte poor. That's a thing. And then light activation Do we, you know, does it get activated with light? Once again, it's overwhelming. There's a whole many, like that many factors to think about. It just gets overwhelming. But once again, there hasn't been any wide uptake of this classification system either. I think it'd be a, a solid idea to kind of have that every time you say, this is what we have, which would be fantastic. But um, it's going to be tough because the reason why I want that so much is because this really limits our ability to study it, right? That's going to be a common theme I talk about over and over again here is when we don't have this uniform standard protocol, like we have no idea what's causing the results, right? Is it the PRP? Is it the platelet concentration? Is it the leukocyte concentration? We're not sure. There's all the things that we're working on here. And so we're kind of trying to figure out and kind of going off the seat of our pants a little bit. You're trying to figure it out. So that being said, let's move on to our mechanism, right? So why we think this works. And I say think this works because once again, this is not set in stone by any, set, you know, any stretch of the imagination, but this is kind of what we're thinking about here. First of all, let's talk about the properties that platelets have. Platelets contain something called alpha granules, and these contain lots of growth factors, which then influence inflammation, angiogenesis, stem cell migration, and cell proliferation. Also, potentially we think that these alpha granules and everything going on there and platelets themselves are kind of the initiator of a healing process. And so that's kind of one of the big reasons we think is, Hey, we get these platelets where we need to go. And that kind of starts the healing process. And some areas don't have a lot of exposure to platelets due to poor blood supply. So think like tendons, ligaments, cartilage, we may not have the best blood supply. So if we provide a stimulus there with these you know, platelets and then these alpha granules that may start a response in a place that normally wouldn't have that because of lack of blood flow. So that's kind of the idea. And so the idea is to make it a super physiologic concentration of growth factors to certain areas to kind of stimulate resolution of this chronic pathology, whatever's happening there. So when I mean stimulate resolution, I mean, Hey, this is an area that's kind of been roped off because you know, there's no blood flow there, but in reality it's kind of roped off, but someone kind of goes under, you know, the rope there and to a you know, restricted access area and kind of helps out and re triggers this area. So that's kind of what we're doing. you know, we start the injection, we put the injection where it needs to be. And that's kind of starting all, you know, the process all over again. And once recruited to this area, the idea is that, you know, platelets then start to clot. So we inject them, they start to clot. And once the clot is formed by the platelets, this activates a releases a release of tons of growth factors from the alpha granules. And so once we get that clotting, we go, and that's why it's so important for our anticoagulants. We do not want to clot too early because if we clot too early, we're activating them too early and we might not get the response we need. So that's the general idea for why we're doing that. Like I said, some of the growth factors that we see inside the platelets include platelet derived growth factor, VEGF, something called transforming growth factor B superfamily or TGF beta, fibroblast growth factors, insulin-like growth factors. Well, that's a hard one to say, say that 10 times. So it looks at long story short, lots of different growth factors, not a big deal there. On top of that, platelet-derived growth factors may activate chondrocytes and stem cells and can play a role in angiogenesis. And so like I said, this is kind of that holy grail. Everyone thinks like, oh, this is going to restart regeneration. And there's some data showing like, oh yeah, maybe it does help increase activity of chondrocytes or the cells inside the cartilage. Maybe it recruits some stem cells potentially. We're not sure, but definitely not like a slam dunk. This is what's happening. And so lots of stuff going on in terms of other things here, you know, the TGF beta we talked about may also be a, a promoter of chondrogenesis. So we've talked about so far chondrogenesis, angiogenesis, we're getting blood to supply there. We're increasing our cartilage. Those are all really good things. And on top of that, another thing, you know, other than just bringing all the goodness there of growth factors to where it needs to be, there's an idea that PRP kind of may help form something called a fibrin gel. And this fibrin gel, if you think of it kind of like a scaffolding, it serves as a bio scaffold to allow incorporation of migrating cells into this tendon healing. So essentially it's like, Hey, it's given an environment say, Hey, you've come to kind of help out with this tendon healing or whatever. Let's 
give you a spot where you can kind of hang out and then really kind of do your thing. And that's kind of what I think about there. On top of that, though, there are some potential negatives to this. You know, everyone's always like, oh, this is like a holy grail. It's so perfect. It actually may increase pro-inflammatory cytokines. Like we know that it increases inflammation. We know that. But it also gets things like matrix metalloproteinase, IL-1B, and some of these may be contratoxic. That being said, at the end of the day, most of the studies don't seem to show that. It seems to be overall seems to be a net benefit for the cartilage. It doesn't seem to be contratoxic like we've talked about in previous podcasts. But overall, it's not like a free lunch. Like there's nothing going on. So also, I want to just mention a couple of nuances in terms of like mechanisms and stuff. Sometimes NSAIDs are softly contraindicated, meaning they're not dangerous. So it's not like hard, you know, contraindication. If something's like contraindicated, it's like, don't do that. It's like definitively bad. But this is like, ah, we don't know. So we, some people say don't take NSAIDs because they think it may make things less effective. NSAIDs are known to inhibit platelet function. So theoretically, this could decrease the effectiveness of it. Like I said, it is theoretical. There's no real direct data saying like, hey, this is worse with NSAIDs versus not. You know, there's some data that it potentially could inhibit things starting. So like that's more of a, hey, this makes intuitive sense. Let's try it. But once again, no real direct study showing anything at all. And so now let's move into applications like when we actually use this. You're like, all right, cool. We're done with all the nerdy stuff. Let's talk about, you know, when we actually get it. But having said, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that here, but it's a wide, wide use case. There's lots of areas you can use it. Overall, like I said, very safe injection. We're not having lots of bad outcomes. This is your own blood products. And so we feel pretty good about that. They're not going to have a bad reaction to it. So overall, very well to- tolerated. So one of the big ones is lateral epicondylopathy or tennis elbow. There are systematic reviews showing it has improved. Like I said, they're all, it does seem to be delayed outcomes though. So I compared it to years better than steroid for sure um, is what it seems like but it takes a while to get there that's the thing like if you check someone in at one month like steroid might be significantly better but longer term seem to have better outcomes that seems to be one with the better outcomes and more data so lateral epicondylopathy seems to be a good use case for it Another one is Achilles tendinopathy um, that we looked at. It doesn't seem to be significantly better than a placebo or eccentric exercises. We've talked about eccentric exercises for rehab. That's super important for tendons. It doesn't seem to be significantly better. And when we looked at the patellar tendon, it did seem to be better than dry kneeling or extracorporeal shockwave therapy. Didn't really see much data about like comparing it to exercise therapy, but you know, better than other modalities that are known to be effective in terms of shockwave therapy. Also looked at the rotator cuff. Those were kind of mixed results. There were some that showed when compared to saline and dry kneeling, it was like comparable and that's never what you want to hear because if we're injecting saline what's what are we doing and once again it keeps coming back to this we mentioned every single podcast that we get improvement from symptoms with saline injection so like all these fancy mechanisms we think oh we're we're starting inflammation or we're doing this and that like does it really matter like does it really matter who who knows and so that's why once again i'm always like cautiously skeptical about all this stuff i kind of think about what is the actual mechanism but once again does seem to be some potential improvement at rotator cuff stuff, not sure, but we're, we're still working on it. From a cartilage pathology perspective, so talking about potentially things like osteoarthritis or, or, or essentially chondrocyte issues, it does seem to be that there can be some help with that. Um, the body data seems to be, there's some improvement at 12 months. seems to be better with younger people, specifically with less advanced OA. So like the person who here is like, maybe you're a younger person with some early onset OA might be a good thing, you know, and here they talked about leukocyte rich PRP seems to be the best version. And like I said, it's all seems to, everything seems to maybe because there's just not definitively anything showing that one specific type is best for anything. And so we're working on that once again. So but it does seem to be worth a shot and kind of, once again, the outcomes seem to be more like 12-ish plus months. And that's kind of where we see the differences. Short-term, not necessarily as good. And long-term seem to have a little bit better benefit. So when we talk about next one is our acute muscle injuries. So when I say that, like, hey, we're 
had a hamstring strain or something like that, like we're going to say, hey, does this seem to be beneficial with that? And so what they found was for some people, return to sport was significantly shorter by about seven days in a PRP group. So there were about six RCTs. However, only one study was double-blinded. And in that study that was double-blinded, there was no difference. So meaning we had six studies, only one of them double-blinded. When the double-blinded one means someone got injection of X and the other person got injection of Y when compared to them, there's no difference, but the other studies showed there might be a difference. So you may have a marginal return on, you know, increased time or I'm sorry, decreased time to return. But once again, that also depends on lots of different factors. And, you know, the seven days make a big difference in your life. If you're a professional athlete, it might absolutely college athlete, professional athlete. That's something we can consider if you're an everyday person who's just like, oh yeah, it's got to spend one more week, not going hundred percent full bore there. Then I'm not sure if that's necessarily, you know, beneficial, but Hey, that's something we can decide together. So next, there's also consideration for using this for surgical augmentation. So use after surgery to help expedite healing and recovery. Most of the studies are on rotator cuff and ACL, and that's kind of what it looks like. And overall, trend seems that it may be helpful for rotator cuff. You know, some when they have big, large rotator cuff tears, it seems like there's actually 20% reduction in the re-tear rates, which is pretty important. ACLs mixed, though, may show some benefit. Once again, it's probably not going to harm you. That's like the biggest thing we take away from here is like, but is it going to benefit you? And, you know, price-wise, we'll see. And then I want to talk about the issues with, you know, PRP injections. Not that like from a safety danger standpoint, like I said, I want to just first kind of touch that first that it seems very safe. These are well-tolerated injections. Um, obviously, in terms of there are different protocols you have to use for NSAIDs, no NSAIDs. We'll kind of talk about that in future studies if you're doing it for tendon stuff specifically. Um, but like I said, it seems very well-tolerated for most people and it has the same risks that every other injection has. Pain, bleeding, infection, hidden nearby structure, all those things still count. But like overall, like from a side effect profile, it seems to be pretty minimal and well-tolerated. So that's really cool, at least like that we know, hey, this thing we're doing, we feel pretty good about that. The problems we have, though, is there's so much heterogeneity. There's so many studies that show different things. There's just a mix of, it's a lot of times the studies soft tissue stuff with osteoarthritis, and sometimes they don't include the PRP concentration. So we just don't know like what we're actually looking at, what we're studying. And there's no studies specifically looking at PRP formulations for any indication, so we can't make definitive conclusions. So like I said, it's not like, hey, this specific concentration, we can go from there and do that. So it's just kind of crazy. And Obviously, one thing I also want to talk about here is the elephant in the room is the cost. You know, this can be anywhere from 500 to a thousand plus dollars. I mean, we're talking some places, depending on where you live, can be up to, I don't know, even $1,500. It's just crazy. And so that's, that's one thing that we do think about in terms of, hey, this is a super expensive injection. And is it worth it for everybody to get the super expensive injection? I don't know. It has to be part of the discussion. And when something's this expensive, like you have to counsel, understand it perfectly. And that's why I'm spending 20 minutes talking about these injections is because I want you to understand exactly what you're getting yourself into if you're going to get this injection. So that's like one thing, very expensive with shoulder shrug emoji. Is it going to work? I'm not sure, but we'll see. That being said, also you have to think about, you know, why is this so expensive? You might ask you like, oh, this is just people trying to get rich on people. And like I said, I want to at least provide devil's advocate on both sides saying, yeah, does it have to be this expensive? Probably not. But some of the reasons why it is so expensive is because one, it takes time. So, we have, you know, time is valuable in terms of if you're in there for 45 minutes for a procedure that is, you know, limits the amount of other patients that can be seen potentially. And so, like I said, you're getting in there, got to get checked in, got to draw the blood, got to spin the blood once, maybe twice, depending on things, and then actually do the procedure, which takes time in itself. So it takes a lot of time. And so that's kind of built in there as well. And on top of that, the kits are really expensive. So there's various big name, you know, companies that make various kits, you know, what they essentially have are these fancy tubes that connect to these fancy kits and then do the centrifuging and spin down all this fun stuff. And, you know, the kits themselves, when you buy them are anywhere from like 
two to three hundred plus dollars and so that's like part of the cost why it's so expensive is because the kits that are sold are so expensive and it's kind of a travesty because the kits are pretty simple in terms of like the components it's like syringes and tubing and then you know you put it into a centrifuge and spin but like i said it's just the convenience of it like trying to pull it off and then it pulls off specific layers like we talked about the supernatant and whatnot so like i said it's kind of a little bit complicated but the kits are super expensive and so that's why a lot of times like the it's built into that as well and so Overall, like I do in all these podcasts, I want to give you my take. So kind of like I said, this is my professional opinion, not formal medical advice, but also not consensus from anybody or anything. So it's just kind of my experience, what I've seen. Overall, PRP seems to be a pretty safe injection though. Like I said, not worried about it from a side effect profile. I think it's well tolerated. Obviously, yeah, you can have interactions or bad things happen at any sort of injection. That's possible, but PRP seems really safe. I think it's inconvenient though, and that it can take anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes just to spin it. And then you gotta do the procedure and all that stuff. So it's an inconvenient injection, take time, gonna get, you know, pretty much have to chunk out a big part of your day. You know, you always have to get poked twice. So you get the blood draw and then the injection. So that's something. And also, this can be a really painful injection. A lot of times people recommend not having NSAIDs, right? So not taking it before or after. And if we're going to attend in with this, man, it is not a fun injection. Anytime I do this, I feel bad because it is not a fun injection for people. And I said, a lot of injections, not that bad. This one, you know, when you do intend in specifically with PRP, it's not a good time. It's not fun. And there's some theoretical things that we shouldn't inject with a small gauge needle or smaller needle, meaning like a 25 gauge needle, you should use like a 21 because if it's really, really small, it could inhibit how effective the platelets are and so like using bigger needle and you can't use um, lidocaine potentially some people say that might deactivate it you can't use NSAID so just a really painful procedure that we have to think about it and then but that being said all that stuff it does seem to have some clinical benefit specifically the ones that look at are like lateral epicondylopathy and knee osteoarthritis those are kind of like the ones that seem to have the best evidence and so overall super expensive is it worth it I don't know. Like it's it's a million dollar question. This is one where you're just gonna have to kind of talk and and kind of have that discussion with your physician and say, hey, is this something that works for you? Like I said, I have had multiple patients, many patients who said, oh, this is fantastic. It worked really, really well. I love it. Like uh, I'm pro PRP. And I have other people who I've talked to who so like, yeah, it did nothing for me. Absolutely nothing for me. And that's like where kind of we are. And that's like, it seems to be like literature. It's like some things are no better than, you know, saline injections. Others say, hey, this is way better. So, and I think it's kind of just the human condition that some people are going to respond well to something and others aren't. And that's very unfortunate. Like I said, that is any medication or any treatment or anything we do, like even exercise or physical therapy, like some people won't respond the way we want them to. And that's just unfortunately how it goes. And we have no way of predicting who that's going to be. And so when I think about it, it's like, okay, how can I counsel patients appropriately to understand this and give them the risks, benefits, and potential pros and cons of this? And that's, that's what this podcast is for. Like I said, this is a long discussion about, hey, I want to have a resource people can talk to and like, hey, if I'm getting this injection, this is what I understand. So like I said, for a thousand plus dollars, this injection, like what's my recommendation? My first recommendation would be obviously making sure it's the right indication, right? It's something that's been going on for a while and you're ready to do the work in terms of physical therapy. You've either done that or want to continue to do that. And then I also think about like, hey, are there other options? Would a prolotherapy injection be a good you know, trial injection for you? For me, that's like usually my like, hey, let's try prolotherapy first and we can work to PRP. Like I said, just because it's inconvenient, it takes longer. It's more painful and is really expensive. And so I, I'll try prolotherapy first. And then if you know we have some results from prolotherapy that are good, maybe not fantastic, then we can work our way up to PRP is kind of where I go from there. So like I said, that is kind of my framework and my thought and process. And like I said, if you have any questions, please let me know about that. I'd be more than happy to answer them. Um, but it's not a magic injection. You know, some people on the internet will say it's it's magic. It restores cartilage when you're bone on bone. It does this, is that. Like that is not the case at all. It can be a 
tool in our toolbox that we have to offer when people are having pain or have issues with something in, or decreased function. So like, so that's kind of where I place it. It's another tool that we have among our toolkit of multiple things that we can try. And so I do hope you find this helpful though. That's all we got for the day. If you could please like, comment, subscribe, or share with a friend, that would mean the world to me. Now, thanks so much. Get off your phone and get outside and have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you later. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.